Welcome for the very first time into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It is but a humble radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon, and joining me, as he has promised to do every episode, is my co-host, Frank Gaylard. I have promised no such thing. I <laughs> promise to attempt to be here sometimes and provided you, as usual, do all of the work and I can just turn up. I'm hoping we don't have to do very much work. I click record and then upload. That's the plan. <laughs> uh, minimal editing. I actually remember reading the number one tip for starting a podcast was to record your first three episodes and then to throw them in the bin and start over because they'll almost certainly be terrible. <laughs> It's probably good advice, but we're not going to take it because we haven't got time for that. Uh, how have you been, Frank? I've been pretty good getting over the January school holidays, which are always, um, I mean, I love the fact that I get to spend time with my boys uh, and my wife, although she's been working a lot. But it is pretty challenging to find time to do any work. And balancing holidays is a ongoing stressful thing for me. I haven't quite worked out the knack. Maybe by the time the boys are too old and don't want to spend time with me, it won't be an issue, I suppose. That's the worry, isn't it? By the, by the time they're ready to, uh, to move on and you're like, hey, let's do a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> we probably should introduce how this podcast is going to work. So recently I realized that we record a whole bunch of panel discussions with amazing speakers from around the world for our annual virtual conference. And afterwards, these are essentially, they're essentially lost. They disappear um, as opposed to the conference lectures themselves, which remain in our lecture collections. So I thought, how about we repackage these discussions into a podcast for everyone to enjoy? So that's what we're going to do. Some episodes are going to be clinical radiology discussion, like today's episode, while others will cover some non-clinical aspects of radiology. We'll hear a lot of different voices from around the world, lots of different perspectives, with the common theme being radiology. And if we have the time and energy, Frank, I think we might also try and record a few little extra things here and there, won't we? I think that would be really good. There's so many people around that I'd love to have the excuse to talk to, uh, and we never seem to find the time to do that. Some of those people are editors from Radiopedia, others are colleagues from our own workplaces. There's people that we've met around the years or even never met but want to have the excuse to talk to. So hopefully if uh, you can do your side of it, which is <laughs> all of it, we can uh, use that as an opportunity. This came about in part because one of our friends of Radiopedia was suggesting that we should start doing some TikToks and things like that. <laughs> I had a look at TikTok and I was like, this is not this is not for me. And I actually had a few people at work going, Andrew, you'd be really good at TikTok. I'm like, no, no, no. Podcast is probably a better fit. And if I can drag Gaylard into it, it'll probably be pretty entertaining. So anything that doesn't have video that needs to be edited uh, should be much absolutely. Easier. That's what I'm hoping anyway. So for today's episode, we're going back to a head and neck panel discussion that I recorded with Christine Glastonbury and Jennifer Gillespie at Radiopedia 2021. I've chosen this one because I think it's the very first panel that I ever hosted um, and both the guests are absolutely delightful. For context, this took place immediately after Christine's lecture on oral cavity tumours and Jen's lecture on imaging of the post-operative neck. Both lectures can actually be found in our Head and Neck lecture collection on the website. However, this discussion should largely make sense on its own. In fact, listening to the panel and then, if interested, going back and watching the lectures might actually be a fun 
a different or efficient way of doing it as well. All right, so let's let's get into it. Let's have a listen to this panel discussion with Christine Glastonbury and Jennifer Gillespie, and then afterwards, Frank and I'll be back for a little bit more of a chat. It's now my pleasure to welcome the two speakers we have just seen, Christine Glastonbury from UCSF and Jennifer Gillespie from Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital for a quick panel discussion. So welcome to both of you. Fantastic talks as always. Christine, Thank interactive. You. you had me fingering my retromolar trigone in no time. So <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. At one point, Christine, you actually asked people to take a selfie of your floor of mouth and email it to you. So if anyone's watching, Christine, Send what's your selfie. email address? <laughs> Christine.glastonbury at ucsf.edu. I'd like to have a collage of everybody's That'd be floor good. of mouth. We'll tweet that out, a collage of floor of mouth selfies. (laughs) So, I've got some questions based on both of your talks and we'll kind of just go through those, but very happy to discuss anything you guys want to discuss. So, I'll start with you, Christine. A lot of what we're looking at in your talk with oral cavity tumors and in fact, in Jen's talk as well with tumor recurrence, the imaging findings were very subtle, right? And I guess my first question to you, Christine, would be, is there anything that we can do as radiologists to actually make our job easier or is it always super hard in this area? So I think this is, it's such a great question, Andrew, because I think one of the hardest things I think with teaching head and neck is people are afraid of head and neck because it seems hard and some of the findings are subtle. But I think one of the reasons I like teaching it and why I really just love doing head and neck is that there are a few secrets. And I that's really what I try to do in, in my lectures is share the secrets. And I think if you learn a couple of the tricks, like for example, when you see a dilated submandibular gland, a duct of a submandibular gland, that's a key that there may be a, a tumor in the floor of mouth, little things like that. And once you start looking at a lot of head and neck scans, you start to see this pattern that they're kind of, I mean, the Squamous cell carcinoma is the most common tumor, but it's it's like one histology. So it's pretty predictable behavior. So it seems really hard because there's a lot of anatomy, but really it's it's just a matter of learning a few tricks and then really just looking at scan after scan. I saw a fair bit of knowing the normal kind of thickness of the muscles in that area, the buccinator muscle, for example, and looking at the fat planes, right? Looking for displacement or effacement of fat. Is that what you kind of look for, Jen? Yeah, and I think just looking at lots of normal scans so that you get an idea of what normal is supposed to be. A lot of practice, but a lot of knowing the anatomy, really. And and Jen talks about this in her lecture, knowing like the history changes everything. I mean, really, I, I would make every mistake in the book if I just looked at head and neck scans and didn't have some history of, yeah. for example, like I talk about an oral cavity. Some of them are almost impossible to see. Yes. A lot of glottic tumors, you can't really see, but your job is not so much to spine the primary. It's really more of looking for the deep invasion and involvement of the bone or perineural um, tumor spread or looking for lymph nodes. So you kind of have to have some history, but yeah, looking at a lot of scans, getting really comfortable with anatomy is critical. Uh, Jen, you actually mentioned in your talk, your process that you actually, you know, kind of dig up the pathology reports and things like that. Can you go into a bit more detail? Like what do you actually do and how much time does it take? Yeah, well, that's the the trick, isn't it? It takes so much time to do this, but uh, you know, 
they're such difficult scans that anything that you can use to make it easier um, is always helpful. So we have the IMR linked to our pack, so I can just open up the patient's record, look at the operative notes, look at the pathology. So I always look at those, always the old scans, because it's so helpful to know exactly where the tumour was to start with so that you can look where it's possibly going to recur. And this is why I guess it's really hard in private practice as well when you're kind of seeing a scan and you know they've had surgery, you can see the neck dissection there, but you haven't got the information and you've also got time pressure, you haven't got the time to be digging up all that stuff. And so you can kind of understand as, you know, people who work in academic institutions have a little bit more time to look at things, why some of the reports you might see from outside might not be to the quality that you'd you'd want and it gets you know it, it is hard um christine yep. at this one is point why I do academics <laughs> yeah, i'm yeah, a chicken <laughs> yeah. to have a little bit more time uh, at one point you very deliberately stated that the tumor didn't show any evidence of perineural invasion on pathology or perineural tumor spread on imaging uh, this is actually something that is covered in the next lecture by Carter, and I think Jen mentioned it as well, and something that she looks for in pathology reports is perineural invasion. But I wonder if you, for just for the benefit of people who are watching who may not have ever considered the distinction between those two terms, what they actually mean. Absolutely. Great question, Andrew. You were listening. You were really listening. Um, <laughs> we so all were. <laughs> PNI is a histological finding of, of tumour invasion in, around, and through nerves. So it's true histological finding. And it's really distinct from perineural tumor spread. So perineural tumor spread is a macroscopic tumor extension along a nerve from the primary tumor. And that it may either be clinically apparent or radiologically apparent. So PNI, which is that histological invasion, worsens the prognosis of all patients and particularly those who have close surgical margins. And it's, it's very much associated with an increased risk of regional recurrence. So there's a lot of data on that. And so I know Jen mentions it in her lecture that she looks at the report to see if there's PNI, because this is, if you have a tumor that has PNI and histology, this is one you're going to be really worried about recurring locally, particularly and in lymph nodes. So by comparison, um, perineural tumor spread that you and I are looking for on the imaging scan is actually not associated with a greater risk of regional metastasis, but the morbidity can be severe. And so when you're planning radiation fields, um, and I get to do that with my radiation oncologists, you're looking to see if it's spreading and they will sometimes preemptively radiate those nerves because it will result in symptoms. If they have gross perineural tumor spread, they'll have pain, they can have numbness, other sensory nerve dysfunctions. And of course, it's how it accesses, it goes along the nerve to access the brain. And you don't want to have perineural tumor spread getting near the brain. It's really hard to get rid of. So the PNI is an indicator that this is a tumor that has a high risk of local recurrence. And so when Jen's reading that and I'm reading that, you're thinking this is one I'm more worried about than others for recurring locally. So on follow-ups, I'm really looking carefully to make sure it's not locally recurring. But a perineural tumor spread is that macroscopic appearance that we see on imaging. Yeah. Jen, back to you. We saw quite a few cases of tumor recurrence where there was PET really clearly showing that there was recurrent disease and nodal spread, but it was quite tough on the CT alone to spot them. And it kind of begs the question, why, why do we not use PET as the primary imaging modality to follow up 
these patients. And then I guess, Christine, if you could give your perspective of how PET is used in the United States, because it might be a bit different here in Australia. So, Jen? Well, I guess if we had unlimited resources and all the money in the world, um, we would be doing pets on everybody. Um, obviously, there's a different way that um, we fund imaging in Australia compared to the States. And I think a lot of places, it's also about accessibility of imaging modalities. Um, so certainly, we would do a PET for most of our cases in the first instance of their first post-operative imaging, but then go to CT following that if the PET was clear. A lot of our patients come from a long way away. So we have patients in Queensland who would have to travel 12 hours by car to get to their nearest PET scanner. So, you know, it's a bit about accessibility. So people are going to go and choose the CT rather than the PET scan. But ideally, PET everybody. (laughs) (laughs) And Christine, what's it like in the US for access to PET versus CT for for following up these patients? Well, I have kind of two things. One is I have very mixed feelings about PET yeah. um, because there are a lot of false positives and there's also different types of PETs. You know, people do PET and they do a nice contrast enhanced CT, which for me is essential in the head and neck. If you don't have a good quality contrast enhanced CT, I think you're wasting your time most of the time because of all the false positives and false negatives that happen. And, and a lot of those complications that we saw in Jen's talk, not going to spot them on the on the pet are you that's you you need contrast ct to spot a lot of those things right so that's and a lot of places will charge you know same price and they'll do a (laughs) ct and i usually describe that you know we get a lot of those from patients having them done on the outside and the ct looks like it was shot from space you know like it's this little small field of view there's no contrast i'm like well there's something there you know it's in Jen's lecture, she shows some beautiful cases where she has a contrast enhanced CT. When you put the pet with it, you're like, yeah, obvious. But yeah. without the good CT, it's waste of time. So the US, when it comes to healthcare, is a complete disaster. So more That's, this is, is all not I wanted better. to hear. That's the main reason I asked right. the question. <laughs> more is not better. And and having having access depends on how much money you have and uh, health insurance. And it's it's really, yeah, the less said about that, the better, I think. Um, it, it's very difficult. I have to tell you, that's one of the toughest things is, you know, I trained in Australia. Everybody has great access to what you really need. People here go broke and they don't even necessarily get what they really need. It's it's really hard. Having said that, if, if you have access to things, a lot of people do get pet. And a classic after uh, chemo radiation, for example, or after surgical resection and radiation, we'll get a baseline scan, either MR if it's an oropharyngeal tumor or most of the head and neck, the oral, can- uh, oral cavities, for example, they will get a CT as a baseline, usually at eight weeks and then a three-month baseline pet. And where it goes from there, whether it's just CT or whether it's going to be a PET CT, will largely depend on if that study is really good. If that study is really good, usually we will just continue with that modality and we won't use PET until we see there's gross recurrence and now we're looking for metastatic spread and what are we going to do for here. The difference is with nasopharyngeal carcinoma, which has a much greater tendency for metastatic disease at presentation, and we're more likely to follow with PET. But by and large, it depends what your insurance company is and how much money you have in the United States. Yeah, it's, it's sad, isn't it? I guess from a CT interpretation point of view, it's really looking for quite subtle changes and comparing with the prior scan, but also 
the one before that and the one before that to look for things that might be growing slowly or happening slowly. I just have written down some key takeaway points that I've taken from your talks and I'm just going to kind of speak them to you and you can feel free to just nod along. Uh, you don't need to respond verbally. You can just, you know, feel the appreciation for the things that I've taken away from your talk. If you want to interject uh, and clarify anything, then feel free. So for Christine's talk, I've written down that tip about using gauze for the puffed out cheek view on MRI because a patient can't really do that for very long in an MRI scanner. Works um, really nicely. You, does it? It's really, yeah. it's really easy. We, we read a paper on it, I don't know how many, 15 years ago. It's really easy. ENT surgeon gives them the gauze, they bring it to their appointment and they put it in just before they go into the magnet and it just looks black, and it, but it pushes the cheek yeah. away from the tumour. But even like leaving the dentures in looked like it was quite useful for some of those tumours as well, right? If you took the dentures out, you're kind of losing a bit of separation between I know. Them. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. No one's ever written about that or done that. But I was looking at it on CTs. So I was like, huh, that kind of helps. helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Good observation. <laughs> Your point about the hard palate kind of being different to the rest of the oral cavity in terms of the tumours that arise there. I see this all the time. Every time I give a hard palate tumour case to one of our trainees, the first thing they say is always SCC and minor salivary gland tumours may not even come up in their differential, even if there's, you know, obvious tumour spreading up the greater palatine canal or something. So I think it's just worth re-emphasising that, that you're really talking about minor salivary tumours there and to have a great look at that greater palatine canal for perineural spread up into the pterygopalatine fossa. The next thing I've written down is the um, gingival SCC goes to the bone. And mm -hmm. so look at CT in particular for cortical erosion. So get a CT if you haven't got one. And then if it is going to the bone, that's going to change your surgery, obviously, because you're going to have to do a mandibulectomy. And so always get bone algorithm, not just soft tissue soft. algorithm, because you're really looking for that at cortical erosion for the marginal mandibulectomies. The next thing I've written here is what we already discussed, the obstructed submandibular gland as a clue to the floor of mouth tumour. That's interesting because often, I think that presents often with ultrasound, right? You're doing an ultrasound for a swollen submandibular gland, you see some dilated ducts. And I just wonder how often, whether I should be more often kind of looking for a small tumour and whether I should be going towards doing an MRI to look for that or do you I'll think- get the patient to do a selfie of the floor of their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, that's the, maybe that's the thing. You need to actually, you know, add, maybe put that in your report, you know, correlation with any appearance right. in the floor of the mouth of a tumour um, would, be, would be recommended. The next thing I've written here is the imaging thickness of the tumours that we see does not equal the depth of invasion. So the pathologist is going to tell us what the depth is. If you've got a big exophytic tumour, then that might not be representative when you actually do the pathology. And so our job is more to map the tumour. I thought you described that well, kind of, you know, the pathologist isn't going to tell them necessarily where it's going. We're going to be able to map it. And then from there, you can predict where it's going to potentially spread to and how much surgery the surgeon needs to do. So that's what I took away from your talk. Perfect. Christine. That was Good. great. I didn't Good. even... I. They, now they don't need to listen to the lecture. You can just like list it out. <laughs> <laughs> and Jenny, from your talk, uh, a few things that I took away. Atrophy of lymphoid tissue occurring post-radiotherapy. I hadn't thought about that before. And then confusing mm. that kind of contralateral, you know, palatine tonsil uh, that we often see that lymphoid tissue there for being contralateral disease because it does look, it looks very asymmetric and that's what you're trying to look for and suddenly you go, oh, look at this big lump over here. So uh, I thought that was a really good point. 
the muscle flap versus uh, sorry flap versus graft the differentiation between those yeah. some of my, my train <laughs> some of my trainees could definitely uh, do with watching that part of the talk but also the muscle flap should maintain that kind of muscle appearance like it's a muscle it's going to become atrophic but it's still going to have that kind of striated appearance to it mm. uh, on the follow-up images and then the other point you made is that kind of any increase in volume of that flap over time is suspicious so if anything it should get smaller right yeah and i think one of the things with the flap is that you tend to look right in the middle of where the operation was but it's really key to look around the edges as well because you know the edge of where the surgery is is often where you can recur and then the final one i've written down here is residual thyroid post the you know pharyngolaryngectomy you've taken out one side of the thyroid, the other thyroid's still there, but because of the distortion of the, you know, the neotrachea that you've kind of put in there, you get this kind of rounded appearance to the, the remaining uh, hemithyroid, and that can be confused for a lymph node. So I thought that was really good because, yeah, again, you're just looking for that, that typical thyroid shape, and if you don't yeah. see it, anything round, anything round you normally think, automatically think is bad, right? So it's just worth keeping in the back of your mind. Those are all great points. Jen's lecture is fantastic. You notice yes. I got the easy lecture right. here. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, they are great points. I've seen a number of those thyroids being biopsied. Mm. Um, and that asymmetric lymphoid tissue, that's a huge thing on PET as well. I was going to say that's a nice false positive on PET. Great false positive. Yeah. Mm. And when they take out the submandibular gland on one side, just as a selective nectar section, and the other one gets colder mass on PET because yes. there's you know, some mild FDG uptake in a normal submandibular gland and it looks like a mass because it's asymmetric. Or a palpable node for the clinicians, like right. often they feel the submandibular gland and think it's a node. Yeah. We're so built for the symmetry, aren't we? <laughs> yep. um, so thank you both again for your fantastic lectures and also just for your support of the conference and for Radiopedia. In general, I know Christine in particular, you've always been very supportive of what we've been doing and I'm very thankful for that. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference, both of you. And we're going to continue this uh, advanced head and neck session now with a lecture from Carter Kavanagh. She lives just a few hundred metres that way. Um, and that's <laughs> on perineural tumour spread and the skull base. And then I'll be back uh, at the end of the session to show a few live cases. So stick around for that. And Christine and Jen, thanks again and bye okay. for now. See you later. Thanks so much, Andrew. Bye. Good to see you both. Great to Bye. see you too. See ya. See ya. Bye. I told you they were delightful people, didn't I? That was uh, fantastic to, to listen back to that uh, panel discussion from 2021. Frank, did you enjoy that? I, I love it. And I love hearing how the Australian accent tries desperately to to remain despite many years out of interest have you listened to uh, or watched either of those lectures uh, i did at the time i didn't re-watch them now i have to admit so you still think out of context without having seen the lectures the panel discussion you can follow along yeah absolutely i i think in fact it gives uh a lot of grounding and, and were you to go back to the lectures now I, I think it would be a different experience um I think that'd be an interesting way of, of doing it, listening yeah. to this and then going back to the lecture, even if it's to revisit it, I think. So that's one thing I'm, I'm hoping from this podcast series that people can you know, listen to these panel discussions and then maybe go back and rediscover uh, the lectures. As I was listening, I realized that I mentioned the graft versus flap thing from Jen's lecture in the panel discussion, but I didn't actually restate 
the distinction between the two. Uh, so that could have caused some confusion. So we probably should clear that up. Frank, do you know the difference between the two? Well, there's not too many grafts or flaps in the brain, so uh, I can't <laughs> say I do this very much. But isn't it a graft is uh, devascularized or doesn't have a blood supply, whereas a flap is on a vascular pedicle, like a free flap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like a, a graft is like a skin graft that you put on a scalp defect. It needs to grow its own blood supply once you put it there whereas a flap yeah comes with its own blood supply so you might take a free flap from the forearm a radial free flap uh, take its own artery place it somewhere else in the body uh, you can create local flaps or even regional flaps like a, a pectoralis flap you can reflect that up into the neck so the difference is yeah very much one of blood supply did you know this is a bit of trivia but the idea of an angiosome uh the angiosome. the piece of tissue um, that is supplied by an artery, um, which is predictable and forms the basis of these vascular free flaps, where by taking an artery and the tissue that it supplies, you can then move the whole thing uh, and with relative safety that it will remain vascularized when you anastomose that artery. That idea, the idea of an angiosome, was first described by a plastic surgeon from my hospital. Ah. Uh, Jeffrey Ian Taylor. I think he always goes by the name of Ian Taylor. And uh, he did these amazing dissections of fresh cadavers where he injected ink into various perforating arteries to show how predictable the territory that was perfused is. And there's um, his book, uh, which I think he used some x-ray techniques with my old boss, Brian Tress, to image it, but but some of the specimens and the photos of them were at least at the Melbourne Museum up in one of the display areas, and they're these full body skin dissections. So it looks like a, a sort of man stuck up on a pinboard with all their arteries branching out in black ink. It's it's remarkable. Whenever a registrar puts MCA vascular territory in a report, I'm going to say MCA angiosome is infarcted. Yeah. That, could, could I do that? or I don't think so. I think an angiosome is for skin subcutaneous tissues. No. Down, I think. I'm not sure. No, Maybe. I'm going to say I'm gonna say Frank Gaylord told me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to finish off by telling people how they can get in contact with us, or you're going to do that. Well, we are at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also try and, and reach me at, at Frank Gaylord on Twitter, although I have to say I'm trying to steer away from the social media cesspool as much as I can, whereas you, Andrew, love to float around in there. So you're at Dr. Andrew Dixon. Uh, you can also email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with uh, any ideas or feedback. And we're expecting quite a lot of feedback. <laughs> Hopefully some of it will be good. If you want to help support us, then uh, Radiopedia, you can become a supporter. Uh, or you can, of course, get an all-access pass to access uh, all our content. And, of course, that also gets you registration to our yearly conference, which we're in full swing of preparing for Radiopedia 2023. Coming up July 24 to 28. And I have to say this next thing, because all the serious podcasters say it and uh, we're desperate to fit in, you can help us by leaving a review of this podcast <laughs> on your favourite app on your podcast app of choice. Uh, well, that's it. Thank you, Frank. That's episode one, all done and dusted. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, I'll see you again next time. And oh, I've got a sign-off here. I asked uh, ChatGPT to write a sign-off <laughs> for us. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> some of it's uh, some of it's ideas that I'm not going with. Keep reading, stay rad. Nah, maybe not. That's probably for TikTok. Read on, radiologists. Sounds like a <laughs> Star Trek kind of one. <laughs> Read well, radiologists. Stay informed. Stay reading. That's pretty good. <laughs> okay. But I think I'll go with uh, we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room.